Two and a Half Admins, episode 166. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Let's do some news. Clever malvertising attack uses Punicode to look like KeyPass's official website. This is a particularly nasty one. KeyPass's official website genuinely is keypass.info, which may make a lot of folks, like, for that matter, Joe and Alan think, like, is this right? Maybe this is the bad domain? But no, it really is keypass.info. But in this case, an attacker used Punicode to make a lookalike with a, uh, this isn't probably the best way to say it, but I'm just going to say one of them fern kind of Ks. It's got like a dot underneath it, which is kind of difficult to notice in the address bar. It's particularly difficult to notice as a modifier because since it lives beneath the K rather than above it, you know, like an, an axon ghoul or axon grove above an E, that means it kind of tends to disappear into like the line at the bottom of the address bar. When I was looking through the reporting on this, it actually took me a while to spot like where the puny code was. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about this kind of attack before with sites getting an SSL certificate for, you know, PayPal spelled with like the Russian A that is almost visually indistinguishable from the normal A or the Latin A. And so this is basically the same thing happening here. But they even went so far as to make sure the malware you downloaded, the .msix, was digitally signed by some company called Futility Designs. <laughs> or sorry, Futurity Designs. I kind of liked Futility Designs, Alan. <laughs> yes, so did I. So it goes to show a couple of different problems. First of all, that even malware can get digitally signed and that, you know, the fact that a file is digitally signed is not good enough. Just like a site having SSL is not good enough. It has to be, is this actually from the people I am expecting it to be? And that was the idea with the extended validation SSL certificates, but it turns out that was just a money grab, and so it didn't really catch on. So yeah, if you do download a file and it's signed, make sure it's actually signed by the people you expect it to come from. Although that poses a whole different set of problems when it's something free or open source where, you know, you don't necessarily know what the company name is supposed to be. You know, I could easily be convinced that that Futurity Designs or whatever was the legitimate company for KeePass or something. Yeah, it would require some actual investigation to figure that out at that point. And mm -hmm. I think this does really point to a, a particular issue that has bothered me for a long time, basically ever since I got used to uh, you know desktop Linux or FreeBSD and got accustomed to the idea that, oh, hey, all the software that I really need and rely on is in the distribution repositories. Well, there's no puny code attack that somebody can execute in order to trick you into apt installing the wrong key pass. For Windows folks, that kind of sucks because you don't really have many options for that, but you might consider you know, maybe one of the third-party package managers like Chocolatey works pretty well. And matter of fact, I believe KeyPass is one of the options if you use Chocolatey as a package manager on Windows. You know, I hadn't heard of that until I was at a firmware conference two weeks ago and had to install Chocolatey on my machine to get an SDK working. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty nice. I mean, if I ran into that on a Linux or a BSD system, I'd be like, man, this package manager is kind of janky and limited. But on Windows, <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of a godsend. The other thing I think that we're not leaning into hard enough as an industry is... Does Google not have some threshold for not accepting this kind of crap? Like, how about if a domain has Punicode in it, maybe check if the names that would be similar are other domains, and maybe this is a spam site, and we should have a person check the ad before it goes. Perhaps, but it occurs to me to wonder how much of a problem that would be for genuinely non-English-as-a-native-language you know, registered domains. Like, 
I don't know how many perfectly legitimate mm. Punicode domains there are that are intended for speakers of other languages. Right. I was saying every Punicode domain needs to be checked, but surely Google can write a thing that says, hey, when we see the Punicode with decay with an accent on it, let's try that domain with the K without and see like, is it trying to pretend to be that site? Fair. And if it does, let's flag this one to have a human approve the ad before it goes live. Yeah. Like I understand they can't have a human approve every ad, but it does seem like there's some obvious patterns to the bad actors here that Google could delay posting the ad via day to have someone look at it. But my revenue, Alan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And paying someone even to look at it for 20 seconds is going to cost them a lot of money. I don't know how targeted this was. I assume not very. So I'm guessing they paid to spam this ad on millions of impressions. How about if an ad is getting that many impressions, we have someone look at it and make sure it's not crap. Again, that's going to hurt the bottom line, though. Mm -hmm. They've automated all of this stuff for a reason, to maximize profit. Yes, th this kind of thing, like having a human take spend 20 seconds taking a look at something that might be a problem at Google scale costs a lot of money in the sense of like, if somebody asked Joe or Jim or Alan to cough up that much money, crap, that's a lot of money. On the other hand, on the scale of Google's P&L sheets, I am not so convinced it's all that bloody expensive. And like I'm saying, not saying you have to do this for every Punico domain. I'm just saying, how about ones from people we don't know who suddenly get a huge amount of traffic and, you know, whose site maybe is going to end up on the Google Safe Browsing block list. Even better yet, this is Google, which means they already know how big a deal various domains are and how much traffic they legitimately get. Mm -hmm. Maybe just kind of keep a database of like those really important domains that get a lot of traffic, you know, natively and specifically look for, you know, ads for domains that are very close to those. That might also be a good place to start. Yeah. Maybe you don't need to check if somebody is trying to do a puny code attack against, you know, Joe's personal blog or whatever. Or, I mean, honestly, even my personal business site, maybe Google doesn't really need to check that. On the other hand, you know, a major password vault tool. And again, like you, you really don't need a lot of human intelligence to figure this out. Google has a lot more information than the rest of us do at its fingertips already about, you know, how many times do people look for these things? So maybe ads that take people to something that looks an awful lot like a really popular destination, but aren't quite that. Maybe those are the ones that, yeah, let's let's look a little closer here. Or I just did a quick check. How about Google looks at the age of the domain, which they consider for a bunch of other things in the search result, because the domain was registered on October 16th. And this story is from October 18th. Huh. So they caused all this damage within two days. If they had had to just wait for someone at Google to say, hey, this is a new domain who's trying to, you know, look like an old domain and all this stuff. It's like, I'm not saying they have to block every new domain for a while. You know what? I am, honestly. If your business plan can't survive the idea that you need to wait a month after you register your domain before you, not before Google will index it, before you can buy ads for it, that doesn't seem like that big a deal from here. Well, and it also seems like it'd be in Google's interest because how many of these malicious sites are paying real money for the ads versus using stolen credit cards or something? And Google's not even actually getting paid in the end for this bullshit. Well, we haven't mentioned that this is actually an article on Malwarebytes blog. And 
I think there's some pretty reasonable advice. For end users, this means that it's become very important to pay close attention to where you download programs from and where you should avoid them. In a business environment, we recommend IT admins provide internal repositories where employees can retrieve software installers safely. That last bit seems like very good advice to me. Mm -hmm. That last bit is what I was already doing 30 years ago. I mean, it's (laughs) even if just for the concept of like, rather than have our users download a 10 gig application 50 times, let's have it on a server on the LAN, you know? And also it's easier to direct users that way. Like this is where you go to get all your software. So yeah, that that is absolutely a, a good recommendation. It's just kind of a head scratcher for me to think like we're only starting to recommend that now after this one particular puny code attack. Yeah. The other thing I notice here is that the actual payload that this downloads is package.tar.gpg. So they're very managing to, you know, have proper code signing on their virus as well. So that they're sure that the virus isn't downloading something else. Although I'm guessing more of it is they encrypted it so that proxies and scanners intermediate to where they're downloading the code don't see that it is a known malware. But it is always interesting to see malware that's more careful about making sure you got the right malware than the actual applications people pay for are trying to use on purpose. Pixel 6 can't access storage with multiple profiles after updating to Android 14. This is from Google's issue tracker. I first became aware of this one because of a rather impassioned plea (laughs) entered as a comment on a uh, relatively unrelated article at Ars Technica. It was actually an article about the repairability of the Pixel 8 Pro, and somebody commented, you know, hey, Ron, Ron Amadeo, the Android guy at uh, Ars Technica, please report on this issue and just linked straight to the issue tracker. So it's about people who set up multiple profiles on their phone or other Android device. And uh, if you don't have multiple profiles, you're not going to be subject to this bug. However, if you are using multiple profiles and you have not yet upgraded to Android 14, you might want to hold off on that. This bug has been confirmed with Pixel 6 and Pixel 6 Pro. To the best of my understanding, it's also been confirmed on 7 and 5. And we we don't really know if 8 is going to be vulnerable or if any other devices are. Uh, It's still very early days for the bug, but the thing that probably caught my eye more than anything else, I'm looking through that bug and I'm like, yeah, that sounds like that really sucks. But then, you know, you get down to all the Me Too comments on the issue tracker and one user comments that, you know, this, this bug affected his wife and his wife is having to log in on a secondary profile just to be able to use her phone at all. But all of her data is on the main profile and you can't get to it from the secondary profile. When you have multiple user profiles on your Android device, the storage individual to each profile is locked away from all the other ones. And so this user ends up their report about their wife's, you know, phone that's experiencing this bug saying, although she's using the secondary profile so that she can use the phone, all of her data is still trapped under the primary profile where she can't get at it. And the user said, it feels like we were attacked with ransomware. That one just kind of, Pulled on the old hard strings. <laughs> it seems like quite an obscure use case, though. Do many people actually use multiple profiles on Android? I didn't even know they were a thing. I think that probably depends on your definition of many. If you're asking for a percentage of Android users that use that feature, I'm guessing probably single digits, to be honest. On the other hand, single digits out of Android users is an awful lot of people and devices. Yeah. 
you know, when you first started describing it, I almost assumed it was the other way, that they enabled some new encryption or something and locked the data down to one user. But the fact that it's just your primary user seems to lose the ACL that lets them write to the file system and so they can't take pictures anymore and they have to log in as a secondary user so that they can take pictures and have access to write to the storage. Not the same storage, it's its own separated storage. But I'm glad I only have the one user on my Pixel 6 Pro and this didn't bite me. Yeah, I'm tempted to check it out on my Pixel 7, but I don't want it to uh, bite me, so I'm not going to. I guess nobody wants to find out, but I do wonder like, if you add the secondary user after you've upgraded to 14, is there still a problem or is it just during the upgrade? I do not know and I do not plan to experiment with my Pixel exactly. 6 Pro. <laughs> exactly. We're not entirely sure of the hardware scope of this. The issue tracker says Pixel 6, all versions. The Verge's coverage of it mentions that uh, one of their staffers, Umar Shakir, tried to reproduce the bug on his Pixel 6a, and although he couldn't replicate the exact problem, the phone crashed multiple times. He even got a system UI isn't responding error at one point. So um, if you haven't seen that bug and you have multiple user profiles, congratulations. But that does not mean that the bug isn't there. And if you don't have a Pixel 6 exactly, I would not recommend just thinking that you're good to go. Until Google has actually found and fixed and released everything to make this bug no longer an issue, I would strongly recommend anyone with any Android device, if you aren't already using multiple user profiles, hold off a bit. Yeah, for sure. Maybe if you are using multiple user profiles, we'd be interested to know what for. Like I know some people would want to have a separate profile for work and, and not work and so on. Or if I had a spare tablet or something, I might have a different profile for the kids or something to lock down what they can do. I've seen parents do that with phones. I've seen parents put a kid's profile on their phone because, I mean, I would never hand my kids my phone, but I mean, my wife does and every other mom I've seen would, would just cheerfully hand off their phone to a toddler on up to, you know, play on for a while. So, uh. I guess creating a separate kid profile is the slightly more advanced version of that. Yeah, it means that the kid can't mess any of your own stuff up. They've got their own account. Can't delete my contacts or call random people from my phone book. Yeah, send stickers to people. And Can't seems like a strong word. That is indeed. <laughs> Let's say there are extra roadblocks erected mm -hmm. <laughs> in between your toddler and horrible, horrible things to your phone's data. Yeah. Yeah, I remember being at a conference and somebody's phone getting a notification. It's like, yep, my six-year-old just bought some more stuff on my iPad. I thought I'd lock that down. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by people who support us with PayPal and Patreon. Go to 2.5admins.com slash support for details of how you can support us too. Two and a half admins is part of the late night Linux family, which means that for $10 a month on Patreon, you get access to an RSS feed that contains all the late night Linux family shows without adverts like this. There's also an option to get just this show ad free for $5 a month if you prefer. Some of the episodes are even released a day or so early for Patreon supporters. So if you like what we do and can afford it, it'd be great if you could support us at 2.5admins.com support. Hackers can force iOS and macOS browsers to divulge passwords and much more, writes Dan Goodin for Ars Technica. This one really opened my eyes when I took a look at it. It's kind of an unusual vulnerability disclosure. The researchers here, they, they sort of created a uh, an exploit demonstration as a service website 
that you can browse to with your own Apple device and see right in front of your eyes what kind of information they can get out of your uh, your Apple device's RAM. This is a side channel attack. It's kind of similar to uh, to RAM bleed, if you remember that one. It does not work the same way. In fact, we don't know exactly how it works because the researchers are still playing that very close to the vest because this is an active and incredibly extreme vulnerability. It's actually not even getting a CVE until it's already been patched. So Apple's already working on that. They say they understand the issue. And in the meantime, there are no indications it's being explored in the wild. So you don't have to worry too much about that other than the fact that somebody figured it out. Just they haven't posted the exploit code. Now, the other thing here is we should point out some of the distinctions. If you're talking about a MacBook, then you only really have to worry about the Safari browser. Chromium-based browsers are not open to this particular vulnerability. On the other hand, if you're using an iOS device, literally any browser is vulnerable because Apple's rules for the mobile operating system are any browser app has to use WebKit beneath it, and that's where the vulnerability is. So, you know, we've seen everything from, uh, you know, chunks of passwords get captured to, uh, you know, tokens for other websites, your browser history. It's a bit of a grab bag what you're going to get, but... Man, it is a well-populated grab bag. Yeah, they specifically called out being able to retrieve YouTube viewing history and the contents of individual emails out of Gmail. The viewing history, I'm not so worried about. People are going to find out, oh, I watch a lot of videos about guitars and football and darts. Yeah, it's not just going to be YouTube viewing history, Joe. (laughs) Oh, Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But the Gmail stuff, yeah, that's a problem. Your advertising going to get real targeted. <laughs> but I say, uh, once visited, the iLeakage site requires about five minutes to profile your machine to figure out which way to use the, looks like it's a side channel attack on the CPU itself. And then roughly 30 seconds, it can extract about 512 bits of secret, which is about a 64 character string. So in 30 seconds, it can get... 64 characters of something out of what is being displayed there. But in particular, the fact that the it's a side channel vulnerability in the A and M series Apple Silicon means this is more like... Spectrum Meltdown. That's what I should have said meltdown. rather than Ramblade. Yeah. And it's specific to that hardware. Now, while currently the exploit only works in Safari, because it's in the CPU, it may eventually go further than that. And it's likely that to fix this, Apple's going to have to do like CPU microcode updates, which will probably come as like a firmware update. But being Apple, it will come as an Apple OS update and it'll just happen. And speaking of speculation, while this is speculation, I think it's pretty fair to assume that while it's very convenient to demonstrate this vulnerability and to have uh, actively developed it as a proof of concept targeting the browser, given that it's leaking data between threads in the CPU, it's probably safe to assume this really is not actually limited to the browser. And once the technique is better understood by a wider array of people, we can probably expect other attackers to target entirely separate applications and find a lot more underlying uses for that unless and until Apple actually fixes the speculative execution vulnerability in the CPUs in the first place. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. 
If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Joshua has done. He writes, Can I get your thoughts and any experience on using TP-Link Armada versus Ubiquity Unify for software-defined networking and managing the networks of small and medium businesses? I've only set up the TP-Link Armada at home myself, but I found it very easy to use and I really liked it. And the ability to set up multiple sites and so on shows that they've thought about, you know, you trying to manage this across a bunch of businesses and, and managing it that way. I have an associate who does the same with Ubiquity and while not happy with their firmware, it seems to work for him. But Jim recommended TP-Link to me and that's what I bought and I've been extremely happy with it. But it really depends what you want to do with it, I suppose. I would recommend Omada over Unify pretty unreservedly for just about anything. Believe it or not, I actually have way more experience with Unify than I do with Omada, despite constantly recommending it, just because I run into so many client sites that already have Ubiquity gear and have set it up that way. I set up quite a few with Unify and Ubiquity myself before discovering TP-Link and Omada, so it's a lot more of what I've used. In general, I think that the Unify interface tends to look a lot shinier, and if you're really into that, if you like a lot of whiz-bang, fancy JavaScript, this and that and the other, then you may think Unify looks a lot nicer than Omada. On the other hand, if you just want to get stuff done, I personally find that the Omada interface is a lot more likely to just get the hell out of your way and, and let you make it happen. Yeah, as an XFCE user, I can say that I quite like it. It's utilitarian, basic, but it just does the job. There's no fanciness to it, and I like that a lot. Yep, exactly. I've also found it more reliable. I've gotten frustrated quite a lot with any number of different Unify controllers that for whatever reason, they just get really bulky. And, you know, sometimes they'll immediately do the thing you asked them to. And sometimes they just sit there and think about it for far too long. And I have yet to see that happen with any of the Amata gear. So yeah, unreservedly recommend. Honestly, if your big point of contention here is like whose single pane of glass interface I would say Ubiquity shouldn't even be in the running. You're really, at this point, comparing Omada to enterprise gear, you know, the HPE stuff, uh, Cisco, Meraki, you know, something like that. Now, when you look at those, they're all going to be yeah, single pane glass in the browser, but, you know, it's cloud stuff. And dislike, not a big fan, but between like a Meraki or Fortinet or what have you and Ubiquity's Unify, I guess I'll grudgingly go with the enterprise stuff, but Omada is really where I live. Yeah, I don't have direct experience with the Unify stuff from Ubiquity, but I have a couple of their inexpensive 10 gig switches because they were a great way to have, you know, a 16 port 10 gig switch for my lap. And as they tried to make the interface nicer, they offered newer firmware with uh, the new fancy interface, but half the functionality wasn't there and you have to click around and find the way to go back to the old interface to actually, you know, set up the VLAN or something. Sure, in the new one, you get this, you know, constant little mini graph of how busy each port is. And sometimes that's helpful. But most of the time, if I'm connecting to the web, inter the, the administrative interface of the switch is because I want to change something about the configuration, not look at pretty graphs. That is unfortunately a very common story in the Ubiquity world. 
probably the biggest source of anger that I see towards Ubiquity these days is actually from folks who bought their cameras. They sold inexpensive security cameras. I mean, still sell inexpensive security cameras, but those used to be very popular with, you know, like the small to mid business integrator market because they were inexpensive, easy to set up, much like, you know, the Unify access points. And they're a single software controller. You can install it on as lightweight or beefy a machine as you needed to. And it all worked quite well. And then at some point, Ubiquity decided that they no longer wanted people running software controllers. And they pushed a firmware upgrade that popped up a big nasty gram on every single screen if you're running a software controller that said, this is deprecated and you need to buy one of our new hardware controllers. Now, that's already pretty obnoxious and it really pisses you off as an integrator when you have just sold a client a 50 camera security system with a controller. They ain't had the thing for two months And all of a sudden, it's telling them their gear is obsolete. That makes you look really bad. But what makes it even worse is if you bite the bullet and you go buy the hardware controller that they want you to get for the cameras now, and they are not cheap. Well, the biggest one they sell won't handle as many cameras as tons of people had already set up camera systems with. Run your own hardware controller with the software on it and, you know, manage 50, 100 cameras, no problem. Then you try to convert the same system over to the new hardware controller because, you know, the nag splash says you should and your thing is old and bad and it can't keep up with the load. Yeah, because I can build a computer that's much faster than their appliance. I have trouble figuring out even the end to that rant because every word I say makes me angrier when I think about it again. There's just, (laughs) there's no excuse for any number of components of the shit sandwich that that turned out to be. So in the meantime, it is a common refrain that you get new firmware for your devices from Ubiquity and you worry about functionality that may be missing, things that may be broken and the need to go back. To date, knock on wood, this is not a concern I've had with TP-Link. I have been doing firmware upgrades on any number of devices and any number of categories that TP-Link builds for about 10 years now. And I have never once applied a firmware upgrade and regretted it because things looked prettier, but there was you know less functionality. It just has not been a thing so far. Should that ever become a thing, you will hear me ranting angrily about that brand. <laughs> that started breaking functionality. That's one thing I've been slightly worried about with the US Cyber Trust Mark requirement to offer automatic firmware updates, where I'm going to buy this device, it's going to work fine, and then one day it's going to update itself and then not work fine. Some functionality will be broken or something, and maybe it'll be easy to roll back and maybe it won't, but it'll still be, my Wi-Fi was working and now it's not. Well, 35 or 40 years from now, when my kids are my age, I really hope that, you know, all updates are separated out into multiple channels. You have feature updates and security updates, and they can be applied independently, and you can have different policies on how long you have to offer security updates and how tightly you can tie security updates to feature updates. Doesn't all that sound nice? I mean, we're not going to have it now. We're not going to have it next year, but maybe in... 2060 or so. You're a dreamer, Jim. That'll really depend on our ability to come up with better ways of maintaining software. It would depend on our will as a species to do the right thing. And uh, yeah, like Joe said, I'm a dreamer. 
Yeah, well, maybe someday some of that will be part of something like the U.S. Cyber Trust Mark and won't have to be a decision you have to make a business case for so much as, well, do we want to sell the thing or not? We really don't have to get better at writing software or anything. There are large segments of the industry that already do that. That's why we have package managers at individual distributions that when they do things like they backport security fixes that, you know, the upstream developer only attached to the newest version that had new features as well as the security fixes. And so your distro repository maintainers backport the security part to the older version so that the new features don't break your stuff. I mean, we're already doing this. We're just not doing it anywhere near as widely as we should. You can absolutely argue that we could and should do a better job of it, you know, even where I'm talking about where your distro repository managers are backporting fixes rather than just making you live on the bleeding edge, you know, for upstream. Yeah, we could do more with that, but we're doing an awful lot of it there and we're not doing any of it in a lot of other places that we really should. Yeah, I'd say the better example is probably more along the lines of classic Unix software like MySQL slash MariaDB and Postgres and Apache and so on, where, yeah, they actually have different branches in their source control and they put just the fixes into the older branches. All it really takes is the will to do it, which is why I said, you know, really, it just comes down to the the cost, basically. And, and yeah, I think making it a business case by making it a requirement solves some of the problem there. The perverse incentives of capitalism, meaning that I don't care about the one I already sold you, I want you to buy a new one. It's not the cost, it's the will. Because the companies behind MariaDB and MySQL, for Christ's sake, which is Oracle now, and yet, like you said, yeah, they, they track things and, and they do it the right way, despite... Well, at least for the MariaDB folks, I'm not going to say that about Oracle, you know, having vastly smaller budgets than an awful lot of commercial organizations that do absolutely nothing of the sort. So, yes, there is a cost, but the cost isn't the issue. The will to do it is the issue. Cost is the issue when you're like, I can't afford to do this. I won't make a profit if I do that. Will is the issue when you'd have to dig some change out of the couch cushions to do it and you refuse to because you just don't care or because you want the change in the couch cushions. Which, you know, again, it's not really the cost at that point. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jrs.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.